0: greetings music nerds and welcome to season six of music makers and soul shakers i am your host steve dawson coming to you from the henhouse studio here in nashville tennessee I'm really excited to be bringing you this new season of shows coming to you on the first and third Wednesdays of every month. I have a great lineup of fascinating conversations with incredible musicians, songwriters, guitarists, steel guitarists, drummers, composers, who knows what else. I've been having an incredible time diving deep with these folks, and I know you're going to enjoy listening. Just a reminder that this year I've taken out the short song samples through the show as things have gotten way more complicated as far as legal use of music goes. So I'll be making an accompanying Spotify playlist to each episode, which you'll find in the episode's show notes and at the website at makersandshakerspodcast.com. So anytime you hear this cute little slide guitar sound, you'll know there's a track to go along with it on the playlist. We have some new sponsors this year, but continue to be largely listener-supported. Your help in keeping the show going is always appreciated, and you can do it with a one-time donation or a Patreon subscription. Patreon is a monthly payment of your choice and when you sign up for that, you get a bit of added content as well as an ad-free version of the show to listen to. If you don't feel like kicking in any dough, that's cool too but you can help by subscribing for free on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or just spread the word by sharing the show following us on Instagram, YouTube Facebook and telling all your pals about it. You can get links to all this stuff of course at makersandshakerspodcast.com Meanwhile, many thanks to our sponsors this season. Please check them out and let them know that I sent you. They are Isotope, Ear Trumpet Labs, Union Tube and Transistor, Black Mountain Picks, and Spectra 1964. Hey folks and music nerds, welcome back to season six of the show. This is episode number 124. Today I am bringing you a conversation with one of the most legendary pedal steel players around. You may not know his name, or maybe you do, but his name is Russ Paul. And Russ is one of the most recorded pedal steel players in modern times, as well as being in demand for his guitar and even his banjo skills, as we will hear. He's played on all those great T-Bone Burnett-produced records of the past bunch of years, including the new Robert Plant, Alison Kroos album, but he's also recorded for the likes of Sturgill Simpson. Carrie Underwood, Dirks Bentley, Nora Jones, Blake Shelton, Orville Peck, Marcus King, Cee Green, Yola, Jim Lauderdale, Buddy Miller, and the list literally goes on and on. For someone as busy as he is, there's kind of a dearth of information out there on him. So we're going to fix that today. There is no, he doesn't have a website. He doesn't really have an internet presence at all, although he's made some cool videos lately of him playing. Um, but he's had a really interesting career. From his early days cutting teeth in country bands around Minneapolis to crazily meeting Ralph Mooney at a gig who who introduced him to the Pedal Steel, showed him the Pedal Steel very first time. Uh, he moved to Nashville in the 80s and kind of struggled in the world of you know recording demos and playing crappy bar gigs for years. But he managed to hone his craft and develop a sound. And I love that in this interview, he kind of says that for him, his career just wasn't ready to take off. It wasn't his time until he was in his 50s. He managed to score a gig with Dickie Betts in the late 80s of the Allman Brothers, of course. And that led to more work with other songwriters around Nashville here, including Don Williams, which is super cool. And then Buddy Miller started calling him for his productions. And Vince Gill brought Russ in for his live band for about five years. And it seems like after about 2000 or so, the floodgates just kind of opened. And when somebody wanted a steel player here in Nashville that didn't play the same licks as everybody else and had kind of a creative approach, Russ was the guy to call. Russ and I met up at the Russell Hotel here in East Nashville, and we had a great conversation and get into all that stuff, and we also nerd out a bit on aspects of his uh, steels, his instruments, his amps and effects. It's all quite thrilling, really, and we're going to jump right into it. Um, Usually at this point, I tell you where you can find more info on the folks on this show, but Russ really has no website, and um, I don't really know where to direct you to, but if you want to see his massive list of credits, which is pretty epic... You can go to allmusic.com and look them up there. Uh, before we get going, I'd just like to shout out the following folks who made donations or signed up to the Patreon over the last couple of weeks: Jim Davison and Ashley Reed Smith. Many thanks, guys! I could not do it without you. All right, let's get down to it. Enjoy my conversation with Russ Paul. Well, thanks for doing this. Sure, sure yeah, sure, I'm, it's a, my I'm pleasure. a big fan. I, I play steel as well, so we're gonna talk a little nerdy
2: okay ste- i don't usually
0: get too nerdy on this podcast okay, it's okay. general like recording and music yeah, yeah. and stuff like that but well, with steel it, players i've had some steel players on and we get pretty pretty
2: it's early in the year so we can you know <laughs> we have some free nerd points. <laughs> all so. right
0: good before we start with anything else you were just when we were blabbing here before we started you were talking about winding
2: pickups right
0: right, right. do tell um do you have, like, equipment for that? Or oh, do you yeah, just...
2: yeah. Pretty, actually, it's getting more elaborate. But uh, I've been doing it about 10, 12 years. Scared me yes, yesterday. I, I looked into a box of, uh, you know, kind of my pickup graveyard, and uh, I saw that, you know, boy, there's a bunch that I wound that didn't work. And then I realized there was a whole other layer underneath <laughs> it. There <It> was about <laughs> – so there's um, hundreds of them, but uh, – I so
0: mean, gu- guitar pickups and steel or
2: gu- guitar pickups and steel pickups and uh you know i've rewound some steel pickups I'm, I'm i I kind of got my own take on uh steel pickups these days real low output like kind of like the old fenders mm-hmm.
0: that's what i i'm looking for something like that because yeah. every i've gone through like two or three during COVID. i started getting like really into trying to find tones and right, whatever right, right. and I swapped them out a few times, and all the new ones are so hot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it just like it—it's not like I end up having to put a pedal that can actually turn the guitar down before the amp.
2: Well, uh, you know, I I don't know the history too much, but uh, pedal steel pickups, uh, I think, started out on the cooler side. Yeah, uh, like the old Fenders. Yeah, you know, to get nerdy, they're around uh, uh, ten thousand ohms. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, a, a, a guitar pickup, like a Telecaster pickup might be six or 7,000 ohms. Right. That's kind of standard guitar range, a humbuckers in there.
0: But that's where the original Fender steel ones were? Or,
2: yeah, around 10,000 or so. Okay, and, and they started ramping up. And you know, a lot of the modern steel pickups are like, you know, 15, 16, 17 to like 22,000. And you know, it, it these numbers are all pretty loose, but kind of the hotter you get, you get a bigger sound, more low-end, but more mid-range, and you start losing high-end. But what I've, uh, over the last probably eight or ten years, I've sort of been scaling back, and I'm a guitar player, too, yeah. so I got frustrated because I wanted to play my steel guitar through guitar pedals. Yeah. And, and it just freaks them out, yeah, right? Yeah, just nothing really sounded good. The distortion yeah. I always sounded just real ganky, and and, <laughs> and uh, I started experimenting, and uh, then, like you know, a number of years ago, I, I as a hobby started kind of messing with winding pickups, and now I'm I'm winding a, a pickup that I've been using now pretty much exclusively for the last three or four years, which is about ten thousand ohms on mm-hmm. my pedal steel. And it's all about scale, because if you have a 15,000-ohm pickup, you play through it, you set your Fender amp on about three. That seems to be where the thing is. Well, with the 10,000-ohm, you just put the amp up one more notch, and it kind of makes up for it. But in the process, before the amp, you can run through, like, guitar pedals, and suddenly that's what they were designed for. So suddenly they start working, really. They become real friendly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I've had this weird thing the last couple of weeks where, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, I've been, like I took everything out of the chain just to see what was happening, mm-hmm. but I ran my steel into a pedal, and it actually happens with all pedals, and into my amp, and it's okay, it's like it's way too hot, mm-hmm. but it's okay. But if I plug it into a DI, mm-hmm. the volume goes up by like 20 or 30 dB. Wow, It's like some crazy... Thing that's happening in the impedance, maybe.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't yeah. know.
0: I don't know that stuff well enough to. Well, but it's weird.
2: To be honest with you, I don't know much about it either. But <laughs> okay. I, I, I think I know what I like to hear, so I just keep playing around, and I found that uh, there's a lot of this, this stuff you can do without blowing stuff up. Right. Know, I've blown up my fair <laughs> share of equipment over the years, yeah. but uh, I'm just kind of I've I've got a pretty knuckleheaded approach to the whole thing, but. Uh, I find that I don't quit till I get what I want so you just keep doing it and keep doing it and eventually you start to see the patterns and uh,
0: so how did you how did you come across the equipment that you need to to wind pickups
2: just get online in fact I just bought a tensioning device usually you just feed it with your fingers and I was having some issues yeah and I started digging and I realized there's a whole industry out there of coil winding you know coils you know, which is what a steel or what a pickup is. Yeah. But also coils are in anything electronic. And yep. they wind really fine wire. And there's this whole industry of equipment for coil winding. Oh. And so I just I found a used one on eBay for mm-hmm. like eighty dollars, a tensioner, which is, you know, made for uh some industrial use. But I found one. I uh I hooked it up earlier this week and my wife in fact got a little miffed with me because I just got lost in the workshop for about two days. And, that happens. Um, and, uh, but I, uh, I figured it out. I yeah. mean, I, it came with a uh, 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 manual that was in Chinese. Really? So it didn't Perfect. do me much good. So yeah. I just kept hammering, just banging my head against the wall and I got it working. And yeah. uh, yesterday was just a very pleasant day of pickup for so
0: me. So it kind of like... It feeds the the wire across the spool, right. kind it, of? Right.
2: It goes through, and it's like we were talking about sewing machines earlier. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just all about, it goes around a bunch of little wheels in some places. Uh, it's just each one gradually controls it a little more. So ne- it's right. never in one place, right. but there's a little friction, and you get to where you can control it, yeah. Amazing. And you can adjust it, and then you find the sweet spot, Yeah. and all is great.
0: So how much experimenting did it take to to find that you could build a pickup that you were like, yeah, this is the shit, man.
2: It took a while.
0: Yeah. Boxes, boxes of pickups,
2: but, uh, So
0: you were, you were rewinding old pickups. I was
2: rewinding old pickups. And then I okay. got into, I bought a milling machine a few years ago, a little milling wow. machine. You're so, in deep, man. Well, my dad was a machinist. I grew okay. up with this bit. I don't know what I'm doing, but I was, <laughs> I grew up in the, the machinist culture. Uh-huh. So, uh, I was able to make my own bobbins. And then I have a friend uh, who work, works at uh, Joe Glazer's shop yep. who was experimenting with their new laser cutting mm-hmm. machine. And he said, do you need some pickup bobbins made? And said, do I? So, yeah. Uh, I actually have a bunch now for uh, uh, pedal steel pickups. Amazing. So, and so I buy the magnets from one place online up in Indiana. I buy the wire from another place. Uh, I just sort you know, the internet is is... Mm-hmm. Used to be there was a place in Nashville called Randolph and Rice, which Mm -hmm. was an electronics shop where all the the studios went to and everything. Mm -hmm. And you could buy all your stuff, and they shut down maybe 10 years ago, and I was lost. And then, you know, you get online, it's all there.
0: Wow. Okay, so you... You mentioned that your dad was a machinist. Now, you're a hard guy to find information on. There's, like, nothing. There's no website. There's, like, you're invisible out there. So now I know you're originally from Minneapolis, right? Right. right, Okay, so you grew up there. Your dad was a machinist. Yeah. Uh, How'd you get into music?
2: Just, uh, I had two uh, older sisters that, uh, back in the early 60s, were big fans of Peter, Paul, and Mary and Theodore Backel, the folk folk scare, they called it, the, the folk boom. And... They had a little uh, acoustic guitar, and I sort of uh, uh, picked it up and uh, started, you know, figuring out some chords, and this was about three or four months before the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan. So it's I was a game about, changer. I for was about nine or ten. Mm-hmm. I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. It was like a brick in the forehead, <laughs> but I was already playing guitar. So it was like, oh, that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. uh, But an acoustic
0: guitar doesn't really cut it.
2: Well, there's a story there. I saw that they had these guitars with what I call horns on them, cutaways, and and looked like knobs and everything. And I didn't know what they did, (laughs) but I did come home the next day. That was a Sunday evening. next day I came home from school, went down into my dad's little workshop and cut a cutaway into our Silvertone acoustic, (laughs) and I glued some knobs on it. Yeah, because I didn't know that... You know, they electric, actually did anything? Yeah. yeah. But uh, no, but it I was, I was cool. pretty eat up with it early on. Uh-huh. Wow, cool. And that hadn't stopped.
0: So. Yeah, so you've been tweaking. You're, you're like a little J.J. Kale down there.
2: Yeah, yeah, and my, <laughs> my guitar is going to be rat's nest, Yeah, <laughs> nice. as he once said, yeah. But it's just... Uh, I think one of the most important things uh, for a musician, or any artist, but uh, a musician is to find... A voice that you have, because uh, there's so many really good players out there that uh, they they get lost in the weeds because they don't have a voice. Yeah. They might play really good, but they might sound more like somebody else that they already know. Totally. and it's like so. It's okay. Maybe you can go out and uh, play in somebody's road band or something. But if you want to really forge ahead, you've got to develop a voice.
0: Which is something that you did here in, in Nashville. So, uh, so were you already on that path? And before you came here, I don't know when you moved here.
2: I moved here in the mid eighties. Okay. And, uh, so
0: what was happening up to that point in Minneapolis?
2: I was doing my first 10,000 hours. I, yeah. since I was about 12, I've been playing weekends and taverns and bars and all through high school.
0: And Guitar. Or were you playing well, Guitar.
2: Steel? Well, when I was about 15, I uh, was uh, playing uh, in a little country trio or, no, quartet. And uh, we had a regular Sunday night gig at this ballroom where they had a deal with a booker that these Nashville bands would were coming through town and generally had Sunday nights off. So they'd book them there. So oh, okay. at this ballroom, well, we were the house band kind of, so we would... Open, you know, play a couple. I uh, play a warm up set, and then between their shows, play another set. Oh wow, cool! And one night, uh, a guy named Win Stewart oh, from my California God. came and played.
0: This is in the seventies.
2: No, no, this is like nineteen sixty seven, maybe.
0: So he's like, he's he's like, kind of at, in he's his current, prime then. He's
2: current. Yeah. Well, uh, he had a guy playing in his band, very interesting, and uh, Paul Brumley. No, Ralph Mooney. Oh, Ralph Mooney, right. Ralph was just out on it, you know, he just, you know, I think they were old buddies, so it was a good excuse to go out and drink. (laughs) So, but Ralph came up to me after our first set and said, kid, you're playing the wrong instrument. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you're over there playing, and I think I had some kind of Gretsch or something, and I discovered light-gauge strings, Yeah. and he said, you're bending all those strings all over the place. He said, you need to play one of these things, and he pointed to his steel, which was his old Fender, I think 1,000-whatever, wow. yep. you know, with the moon, half-moon wow. on it and everything. He said, this will do the job for you. <laughs> I said, will you show me? He said, yeah, hang around Come afterwards. On. So...
0: Did you know who he was
2: no 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 Oh shit man yeah i was you know i was a beetle kid you know but i happened to be playing with the country how so. old would
0: he have been then like in his 40s or something yeah maybe? i would say
2: he was probably 40s okay if that you know yeah yeah so uh wow. at the end of the night he said come over here kid and, and uh uh he sat me down he said, sit behind this thing. And the first thing he did, he got out a half pint of whiskey out of his pocket. He <laughs> said, have a swig of this. You know. And I was like 15 or 14 or something. Okay. So I took a swig. and uh,
0: that's, that's how you start the, that's the how pedal you steel. playing
2: pedal steel. <laughs> and he showed me the basic, da, 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 you know, using the first two pedals. Mm-hmm. And I went, oh, like that? And he said, yep, you got it. And that was it. And the next day, which was wow. a Monday... All these cool things happened to me on Sunday Yeah, it evenings. seems like it. And then yeah. Monday, uh, the bass player who was my best friend. He was two years older than me. He had a driver's license. We s- skipped out of school at, that afternoon. Somebody had said there was a pawn shop in North Minneapolis. We were out in the western suburbs. And we went down to this Buddy Rhine's pawn shop, you know, in the dark <laughs> bowels of North Minneapolis. Sounds sketchy. And, yes. And there was this pawn shop. Run by a uh, little person, I guess you know we call them midgets at the mm-hmm. time, he played steel guitar, and he ran this pawn shop. He had a homemade two pedal like a pedal really steel short one no this one he this one he stood up and played it kind of but wow. you know, it, it was just something he had in his pawn shop, and somebody had told me that there was a steel guitar there, so I bought this homemade used pedal steel that afternoon amazing, and Friday night I was playing it. At the gig.
0: Was it, a, was it a 10 string or what it was it? It was a 10 it?
2: string. Yeah. It had two pedals, no knee levers. Uh, and first thing I did was realize I didn't like the sound of the pickup and I <laughs> pirated a couple of Fender uh, single coil pickups. It was 10 strings, so I just put two of them side by side. Sure. And, uh, you know, so that began really early. but Wow. Uh, and I took right to it. You know, I wasn't yeah. playing anything fancy, but I, I got it. it. It it made sense to
0: me. So you sort of fashioned the steel with. So it had two pedals, no knee levers. Right. Were you? Um, did you get pretty deeply into the whole steel thing quickly? Like, were you um, learning stuff off records? I was
2: kind of learning stuff off of hippie records and stuff, and then like I,
0: Garcia stuff. Or
2: well, this was kind of this was almost that. before Garcia. So it was, I was. I remember the Youngbloods. Uh, oh yeah, and, uh, Elephant Mountain. No, there was a was it Elephant Mountain? There was another album, but they did had a couple songs with uh, primitive steel on it. Good, prim- I love. Who
0: who would have played on that?
2: The, their keyboard player, a guy named Banana, who was actually. Oh on yeah, yeah. He, uh,
0: I did a gig with Banana.
2: Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, he. Uh, uh, he played steel. He right? played steel, and it was huh. very rudimentary, but it's it was it effective. It was very effective. Yeah. In fact, going back a little further than that, I think it was before I started playing Steel, the Love and Spoonful's first single, Do You Believe in Magic, Mm -hmm. had the guitar riff. Which was a Steel guitar riff. Really? Well, to me it was. Okay. uh, It was that whole tone. And he wasn't bending it, but he was playing it like aping. And the first time I heard that, I was with my... uh, my si- older sister was driving, my mom was in the front seat, I was in the back seat, and the radio was on, and that song came on the radio, and it resonated. So I jumped over the seat to turn it up. <laughs> but, and still to this day, that is the essence of what pedal steel is, is that whole tone change, that right. first pedal. Yeah. That's, where all, you know, that's where it all is. That's what it's all about. Everything else is that, great. The A pedal. The A pedal yeah. is just, it's the apex. You know, it's just, it's the whole thing.
0: Now, you only have two pedals on your steels. Yeah. So you don't have the C pedal.
2: I did for years. Just but you just me. never used it? I just never felt it, uh, I could get it tuned right, uh, I was. it felt awkward, and mm-hmm. I always thought, man, somebody, uh, you know, this ought to be on another pedal or something, that the, the fourth string should, you know, raise independently. Yeah. So maybe 10, 15 years ago, I just put it on an E-lever.
0: So what levers do you have on your steels, or are they different?
2: Well, I have four levers, Yeah. and three of them operate
3: the- E to F, the, E yeah, to
2: E-flat. E to F, E to E-flat, and then E to E f sharp so right. three of my knee levers just all deal with just the fourth and eighth string okay and then my other knee lever just drops the uh, second string a half tone.
0: standard that's it. Yeah. yeah okay yeah. so the the two pedal thing just stuck ever since <laughs> it
2: stuck well that's how i started and <laughs> yeah, yeah. and and that third pedal always felt uh, odd to me and somebody told me once that mooney maybe had a pedal over on the right side of his guitar that did that Oh. or something like that
0: you mean like for his other
2: foot yeah to oh. reach over you know so it always made sense to me and it's still to this day i mean mm-hmm. uh i was uh, doing some overdub at the house yesterday and i realized how much i just have i'll be playing and i can just that is just a this great little expression in all mm-hmm. kinds of positions to raise that f- fourth string i also raise the eighth the whole tone too uh the eighth string
0: the the the, e, e. the e to e flat or to f sharp yeah Oh, okay. Cool. So, yeah,
2: all three levers just do the same thing to the octaves, right? And it's Interesting. it's very expressive. Yeah, it's very expressive. It's the whole tone change. Right. It's another one. So yep. you have the, because with the, you uh, know, uh, you got the third pedal, you you just have more combinations. It's to me, it's just the. It, it, and it's it's much more in tune to me. Mm-hmm.
0: At what point were you kind of dedicating yourself to steel? At, like when you were playing in bands in Minneapolis and stuff? Like
2: yeah, I just you know before always, you were twenty
0: yeah. years old or oh yeah no okay. I was fifteen you fourteen
2: fifteen yeah and I uh, you know always kind of played both for a while there uh, my steel got stolen <laughs> so I probably went for six or eight months without a steel <laughs> but,
3: oh uh, what a drag
2: yeah and uh, but and then. Uh in the Did
0: you end up getting a uh like a a good one after I that ended or? up
2: well after that I got a fender, double neck uh okay. you know, fender and then I
0: tens or eight, eight that was eight eights, and, yeah. and
2: then uh I think I got then I I, I had a series of ten strings. I, I had a lot of steals, you yeah,
0: know, just different ones. So were you playing were you ever playing like hardcore country stuff?
2: Yeah. Yeah You were yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. This band I played with uh I mean, I was in, you know, garage rock bands, yeah. but then this one band, when I was about 14, called me up and said, we need a guitar player Friday night, which was that evening, because <laughs> uh, our cousin plays guitar, but he's laid up drunk somewhere, mm-hmm. and we heard you play pretty good guitar, so... Uh, they came and picked me up because I didn't drive yet. And this is before I played steel, but I went out and played with them, and at, I ended up playing with them for a couple of years. Oh. And the, it was two brothers. One played drums. The other one was a lead singer and played a chordovox, which is a an accordion with a Lowry organ unit built in. For Far out. It. So I want uh, one. Oh, <laughs> it's great. So he he played. We did, you know, this is Minnesota, so we did modern. Yep. Which was like be Johnny, be good, or you know, kind of okay. you know, basic rock and roll. Uh, country, this guy sang like Merle Haggard songs and stuff. Okay. And, uh, and old time, which was polkas and waltzes, which okay. was you know, uh, my biggest surprise when I moved to Tennessee was they don't know what polkas or right. waltzes are here. It's yeah. just very foreign. Mm-hmm. And but I, I grew up in this culture where we knew, you know, that was part of what you played
0: yeah i'm from canada so i oh you, you know i walter osteneck man like i know all about the polka world
2: yep yep and <laughs> and i still love that stuff yeah you know? i still listen to whoopie john and the six <laughs> fat dutchman <laughs> love it
0: um so what brought the what brought on the move to nashville like at what point did you say like i i gotta get out of here is that what happened or
2: yeah i played uh, uh i played from when i got out of high school i played I averaged about seven nights a week playing in clubs. In That's Minneapolis a lot of nights from seventy-two to about eighty-four for about wow. twelve years. Uh, the the average comes out because I did a lot of I played all the time. I was in two or three bands, mm-hmm. and we would play club gigs where we'd play six nights a week, yep. and we might play in a club for three months. Wow! You know, all just in book. Minneapolis. Yeah, or? all in Minneapolis. I never traveled. We just wow really. Played. And there was a lot of there was a lot of work. Those days are so gone. A lot of uh, I made good money. I yeah. a kid, you know, yeah. I was single, and uh, I played yeah, you know, like I played twelve years in rock bands, country bands, disco bands, all kinds of stuff.
0: Were you playing more guitar generally, or um,
2: it all depended? Yeah. Sometimes I had a, uh, I was in a rock band, and and I had my steel, and I had a Leslie one forty five that I nice. modded, you know, primitively <laughs> yeah. to play. Uh, uh organ parts.
0: God so, you're hauling that around to every gig. I, yeah, Jesus. we
2: used to haul in yeah, the PA. <laughs> we had everything. So but uh so I did that and then about eighty four I realized I was the big frog in a small pond and uh <clears throat> I didn't have any reason to get better because I was good enough. I could have just gone on playing there and yeah. I think I would have probably uh, drank myself to death. So I uh, thought I need to go somewhere. So I went to Nashville.
0: Did you know anyone here? Not really, no. Okay. And so what was that like? Like, what, first of all, like, what was the scene in Nashville like at the time? And and what was your life like as a, as a young person coming here at that time? Oh, it
2: was great. I, 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 you know, I had saved a little money. I came down in my little Japanese pickup truck with a little camper on it, like Mm -hmm. all drummers or steel players had (laughs) at the time. (laughs) And, uh... I found, actually, I had a, a a friend of a friend who lived here. So I, I had somebody to call and say, hey, I'm in town. Can I crash on your couch? Yeah. And it turned out that the little apartment right next to theirs was coming up for rent. So okay. I just secured that. And the first couple months, I uh, every night about 9 o'clock, uh, I had a double-neck fender in one hand and a... Uh, session four hundred, in the other hand, and I went around to all the little nightclubs. Really, and I would just go in. Can I come and sit in with your band? I'll set up on the dance floor. I'd, I'd play for an hour or so, yeah. and then I'd take off and go to another one. And I just, really, I just did that, man, st- every night. Ballsy. And but what happened was that uh, eventually somebody would go, oh well, hey, Friday night, I got to do an Opry spot. Can you sub for me? And okay. it just, and then. So what
0: what were the cl- what was the club scene like? Oh, well at there, that was, point?
2: there was there was there was a number of these clubs. There was a place called Gabe's, there was the Rose Room, there was This is like 84 maybe 85.
0: Were these it, like Broadway clubs or
2: Yeah, or, but they yeah, were around town, not Broadway. Broadway was Skid Row at the time. That right. was a pretty dangerous place. But they were around in, you know, different areas of town, Hermitage, yeah. Trinity Lane, out by Opryland. There was, oh, there was yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And So I would, uh, you know, I ended up kind of getting gigs and, and I had, uh, i met a lot of people and a lot of friends of mine had, uh, played for Opry acts. Mm -hmm. So they would go out and do a little touring. They do Opry shows, but they would play in clubs. There was a whole club scene of a bunch of us musicians that were all kind of new to town. And it was, these people were, it was about country music, Mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, and then... So, th-
0: uh, so you moved here in 84, you said? 84, yeah.
2: 84. Okay.
0: Yeah. yeah. So country was sort of starting to change at that point, I guess. That was transition time. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It was pretty much in full swing. The Opry yep. was roaring. The, yep. the The Nashville network. The was TV the Opry thing. at It was Opryland? at the new place. Yeah. That's okay. been there I think, since 72 or okay, something. Okay. Right. And uh, yeah, the Ryman was <laughs> shut down, I think. Right. that They almost condemned it. Yeah. Uh, but... Uh, I started, uh, you know, just hanging around with these different people. And then I started, uh, somebody said, you know, you need to meet songwriters because I wanted, I wanted to be a session musician.
0: Okay. So that was a goal. That
2: was a goal. And yeah. I, I, I recognized that I would probably have to go through uh, a, a go through process. And I, I realized, well, maybe I need to get uh, like an Opry gig, which I never did get, but maybe a road gig. And uh, early on, uh, well, I s- started getting to know songwriters because I heard if you can play on demo sessions and people will hear the demos and go, I need that guy, I need right. that guy. And I thought that would happen really fast. Well, it's not that fast, but it <laughs> did work. But. So I started getting to know songwriters. and
0: How? Just showing up at, like, rounds and stuff?
2: Yeah, just, you know, through where they, you know, somebody would do, a friend introduced me one night at one of the bars. Here's a guy named Dave Gibson who mm-hmm. was, you know, writing some hit songs at the time. And we became pals, and I started playing on his demos. So yeah. play guitar or-
0: demos that he was doing like were people at home at this point or were they using no, music row studios was, he and he stuff
2: was, he was he had a publishing deal mm-hmm. and we would uh go uh uh was Gene Breeden's? Oh, I'm trying to do. Anyhow, it was a studio with a, an old eight-track Ampex that only seven tracks worked, and you could punch in, but you couldn't punch out.
0: Just <laughs> <laughs> limiting in a cool so, way. So, yeah, you know, so that
2: was the kind of stuff, and we'd spend days there, and uh, uh, that's where I met uh, Craig Wiseman. Okay. who's one of the biggest songwriters ever. Well, that was back when he was playing drums in a club band, and wow. we, we became friends and wrote songs together, and, and we... Would uh, find free studio time at these little rundown studios and, mm-hmm. and work on recording and stuff. So and then, through a friend. Uh, uh, who, who
0: were the main Steel players in town at that time?
2: At the time, Sonny Garrish. Mm-hmm. Paul Franklin was he, was already. He
0: would, he would be a youngster, though. He at, was a
2: youngster, but he was already had his feet in right. really deep. Yeah. Buddy Emmons was still around. You could go see Buddy Emmons playing at the Holy Hall shit. of Fame Inn. <laughs> Or Paul Franklin. They kind of, uh, they, they shared the same gig, you know. Yeah. The, and uh, Weldon was still playing. Okay. Uh, Hal Rugg was still playing. Amazing.
0: Did uh, you get to know some of those guys?
2: Um, A little bit. Not mm-hmm. a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Not a whole lot. Uh, you know, I was pretty much in awe. I didn't, you know, I was yeah. pretty embarrassed to, yeah, Well, you. that's
0: a thing, right? Like, for anybody... Coming to a, a town like this, you see somebody like Paul Franklin or, I guess, Buddy, Am- like right. I, I never saw Buddy Emmons, but like, I've seen Paul Franklin enough uh-huh. to be, to question why I would play the pedal steel. Right,
2: right, right. you just, <laughs> you know, and what do I really have to say to this guy and, and, but I better pay attention because, you know, yeah. he, he knows something I don't because he's, he's working all the time and he's right. playing on records.
0: Yeah. So, and, and were you getting, like when you got called to do a session, were they, wanting somebody to sound like Paul Franklin?
2: Oh, there would be times, yeah. There yeah. was the whole, you know, there's the uh, 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 the arc of a, of a session player is like uh, who's so-and-so, and then well, get me so-and-so, <laughs> uh, got to have so-and-so, then we need somebody, a young so-and-so, and then it's back <laughs> a to cheaper so-and-so. And so. Yes. <laughs> and so, yeah, there was a lot of that, and it yeah. was, and my wife, is the daughter of a very successful uh, session guitarist oh, yeah. and uh you know she always said you know who's who well who, his name called? is billy sanford he oh, played okay, on a yeah. million records For my sure. wife's name yeah. is ginger and okay. and uh, we've been married 30 years and yeah. uh we uh, uh she had enough insight you know she i sometimes i'm i go why didn't it happen earlier why did it happen she said it's you're not going to happen before your time mm-hmm. it's just going to be maybe you're not ready
3: mm-hmm.
2: you know this and that because i i um well anyhow i worked my way up to where i started playing some demos i got into a couple uh did some touring with some different people
0: what kind of tours were you doing
2: well my first gig first time i ever got on a bus was pretty early on. I had a friend who, uh, knew Dickie best. Oh yeah.
0: And, I got it. Yeah. We and, got to talk about that. And
2: Dickie, Dickie was living in town in Nashville at the time. He had just gone through Cumberland Heights. Yeah. So he was clean. Okay. And oh, that's would, a rehab. Yeah. Okay. And he was living here, uh, at a friend's house and this is
0: like pre-pattern disruptive Dickey Betts. Like
2: I, yeah, I don't know exactly. This was post uh, Highway Call. On this,
0: I love that record, Highway oh, yeah. Call, it, man. That's like oh, one of yeah. my favorite. John Huey. Ah.
2: beautiful stuff.
0: Killer. But this is pre Warren Haynes, obviously. Yeah. Okay.
2: And so uh, I went and played on a demo. He was. How did he,
0: How did that come up?
2: Through a friend of mine I knew from Minnesota who had come to town earlier than I and he played Danny Parks and he uh, okay. he played fiddle out with Dickie on the road right. and he gave him, he gave Dickie my number and Dickie called me he wanted me to come and put some steel guitar on this demo he was doing of a country song called too late to go home early okay so I met him in a studio and played on the demo and uh, how was it was
0: it intimidating or was it like oh was he cool
2: he was cool. He yeah. was great. He was great. And um, were you
0: just overdubbing or were yeah,
2: just overdubbing? Mm-hmm. And I don't remember it because I was probably so scared, and, you know, <laughs> which is so in the moment. But how
0: long after you moved to Nashville did that happen? This
2: was a couple months. It was pretty that happened okay. pretty quick. Yeah. So
0: and I guess Dickie Betts wasn't exactly like a hot commodity at that point. Either, no, right? he was
2: kind of in a slump. Yeah. And he wanted to do he was hooked up with a management here in Nashville. So he kind of wanted to do a country thing.
0: Yeah. I mean that's what he was sort of doing up until right. the late 80s
2: so uh a few weeks later his management called me and said dickie's going to go to some tours you want to uh hmm. how would you like to go out i said yeah so i went out for oh better part of the year did wasn't a vassar night.
0: clemens in his band for this, a while this,
2: that was earlier okay this one uh, john yudkin played fiddle yeah. uh, johnny neal played uh, oh, wow. organ. Okay. it was a really good band yeah and we had between the fiddle and Johnny Neal and the keyboards and the steel and Dicky, we had all the Almond Brother parts right. worked out in three and four parts. Amazing. Really cool. Uh,
0: you were just playing steel for just him? Just playing steel. Just the whole night? Just playing steel, yep. Wow.
2: So, uh, because he was playing so much, and it was just— there But was, you
0: would play, like, Jessica. And yeah, we played Jessica, like play all, all that the, stuff. all the Dickie—
2: Pretty much, I was playing— Playing the parts, and then I was playing what I called expression in places, but I didn't really do much soloing or anything. That was okay, leave that to Dickie, and and I I kind of underplayed in that
0: end, yeah. But how loud was it?
2: It was pretty loud, but I was, you know, yeah, he was loud (laughs) as hell. I mean, he he had a Marshall 50 watt with JBL speakers. Oh
0: my god, but
2: and he was when he was on, he was very mercurial, so it was like he was either the best in the world or pretty damn lame just depend on his mood really and and he was he was dabbling in sobriety, and I think the whole thing was a challenge for him.
0: Yeah,
3: yeah. But I
2: worked with him for.
0: Was that like hardcore touring, or was it pretty sporadic?
2: No, nah, it was. It was just we'd go out for a week here or there. But it was cool because yeah. we played mostly kind of rock clubs. How
0: I, what like what kind of like a few hundred people at that point, or was it bigger than that? It or? was bigger
2: than that. we played like the Stone Pony and okay. in, in Asbury Park. Some you know I don't even remember the name of the clubs, but. You know it was my first time on a tour bus it was great yeah, yeah. You know, i was young and, and that's super uh, cool
0: man what a great gig
2: so uh then i came back to town and kept clubbing and stuff and then i uh uh ended up uh, working with a guy named michael johnson mm-hmm. who was a singer who had a couple uh, nashville hits he was more of a kind of a really cool folk singer yeah and uh did that and then i worked with don williams for about three years wow I was the only steel player to ever play on a, on the road with
0: him. He just called you
2: Uh well, our this Michael Johnson, we uh, we opened a short tour for Don up in Canada and I got to know the guy. That's where I met my father-in-law. He was out playing guitar with him and mm-hmm. uh, they we all be you know, I became friends with uh, a few of the people in the band and the next year they called me up and said, "Well, uh, Don wants would love to have you come and play in the band." Wow, so, cool. I went and did that. I did that for three years. Yeah, and that was great. Great band. Like three full years. Three full of, years of touring. Wow! And uh, one of the best road bands you'll ever. I mean, they they played so soft. It was my first nice. realize that you do not need to play loud. Right. And so
0: at in the, at that point in your career, what were you playing? Like what kind of steel and what kind of amps were you
2: playing? I, I um, well, when I when I was still in Minneapolis, I had a friend named Clem Schmitz who had a uh, a steel guitar store called the St- Steel Guitar Emporium in Minneapolis. He was an Emmons dealer, okay. and he's an ace Emmons mechanic. He's written a book on it and everything. Yep. And so I really got heavily into push pull Emmons guitars. Okay. And so I bought one of the last uh, push pulls uh-huh. made before they moved early seventies. The or this is no, this is uh, late sixties. No, this is early '80s. Oh, early '80s. '80, '81. They are still making them then, eh? Yeah. Okay. And this is one of the last ones. I still have it. It's a beautiful guitar. Mm. Heavily modified, of course. But, yeah. Uh, and uh, I was playing through Twin Reverb. Okay. No effects at the time. I was playing really. Uh,
0: Real straight. Straightforward. And were you playing the C6 neck too, or?
2: Mm, you know, I uh, when I came to Nashville, I. Uh, would go see Paul Franklin and Buddy Emmons and uh, realize I never understood the C six. I could play stuff on it. I could yeah. play, but I never really got into it. So I. Uh, it's
0: kind of disheartening seeing this.
2: Uh, guy. Yeah, I t- I took the back neck off, sold the parts, to Clem, and uh, I really I kind of paid my rent for a few months uh, with the parts. So oh, I, okay, I guess I have to say I. Um, paid my rent with a C6 for a few months. <laughs> Literally, bad, bad little jokes, Yeah, but uh, so
0: you just had a hole in it, or you put a pad in it?
2: I had a hole in it. It still got a hole in wow, it. Wow, cool. It's great. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, uh, so yeah, and I, I've been a push pull guy. I still am. Yeah. Uh, I met Jeff Surratt and uh, got uh, started working with him maybe ten years ago. Uh, uh, kind of, he, I would kind of have these design ideas and he's humored me and he's built me three or four guitars. And that's, uh, that's mostly what I play now is, is one of Jeff's guitars.
0: What's So what are they called? Show pro. Oh, the, oh he's show pro. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, like anytime I've seen footage of you, which there isn't a ton of that I know of, but there's like a pink one. Yeah. That's one of them. That's yeah. That's my main, guitar that's your main now. one. Okay. So, so here's what I've noticed about it there obviously there's two pedals there's volume and tone controls there's two pickups right
2: there's two pickups on it there's uh it
0: do you have a pickup selector like a telly kind of thing yeah
2: I've got okay. a, I've got a three-way switch uh, I designed the guitar uh one of the first people I met in Nashville was a guy named Steve Henson mm-hmm uh met him like the first night i was here we just you know and we were like uh brothers from different mothers you yeah. know and uh he uh he was telling me you know, he loves to play old emmons single necks mm-hmm. and he says i think they sound better because a double neck is basically two single necks Seam together. It's it's two different right. layers, yep. and it's a smaller soundboard. But the single neck is actually about a two inch bigger soundboard. Uh-huh. And so I got this idea. So the pink guitar is a bit single neck, but it's a it's a big flat. It almost looks like an old Fender some ways. Yep. and. I designed But there's no
0: pad, right?
2: No, no, it's no. Just, no. It's, it's just a single neck. Yeah. It's not on a double body. It's okay. like a single neck. The the neck is right in the middle of this like twelve or thirteen inch body. Okay. And then the neck, i designed it so there's a bunch of extra area up there with a control cavity in it. Mm-hmm. So I've got uh I've So what's got up a, there? You've got... I've got a, a distortion unit. I have Built in. A, yeah. Preamp. Far out. I've got various controls i've got a leslie speed switch it's changed i can take off the cover and change out whatever's in there
0: that's a lot of shit in there
2: yeah yeah and i've got what's a the internet. what's
0: the distortion circuit all about is it it's, from like a rat or something or no
2: uh a good friend of mine rob mcnelly is one of the top guitar players and He's saved me so much in money because he's always trying pedals and stuff. And we have (laughs) a very uh, deep tonal relationship. Uh And uh, he, I'll call him up and go, what do I need to be looking for? And he, there's a guy named Nick Greer, I think is maybe in Georgia or something. I've got some
0: Greer pedals. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And it's called the uh, Ghetto Stomp. Okay. And... He said, "You're gonna like it. I think it's supposed to be like an old Supro or something, but I think it might be cool for steel. Mm-hmm. So I got one, and I loved it. Mm-hmm. So I had it's,
0: it's an overdrive.
2: It's an overdrive. Yeah. yeah, and I built, I just unhoused it and built it into the guitar. And the so first,
0: it's just sitting. the The circuit is sitting there.
2: Circuit, yes, yeah, sitting under a cover in the guitar. And do you have
0: like how do you turn? What how do you activate I've it? I've
2: got a little f- like four way selector switch that no th- nothing preamp." Uh, distortion, you know, I'm just switching. What's it. the
0: preamp for? Um, uh,
2: well, using a, uh, uh, nine or 10,000 ohm, uh, pickup, uh,
0: you need some juice.
2: Well, uh, not much juice, but enough. Also, if you're going to run long cables or yep. run through, it's just a buffer. So okay. I actually I do use a little bit of a, yep. a clean preamp. And that's okay. one of those EP ones. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I just bought one last night. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I bought a couple of those, unhoused them, yeah. and then built it into the guitar, so...
0: Wow. So it so it runs through all that before the output jack, obviously. Yeah.
2: Uh, first thing, the uh, uh, the guitar works a lot like a Telecaster. It's two pickups.
0: There's one volume, one tone. Yeah.
2: Okay. Basically, it goes first to the selector switch. Each okay. pickup goes to the selector switch. Then it goes to a standard tone and volume, just like a guitar.
0: And you've got a three-way selector. So it's yeah. one pickup, other or both.
2: Yeah. Okay. And then it goes from there to a tone and volume passive yeah and then it goes to uh if i want the distortion or the preamp
0: and how much control do you have over like do you have all the all the overdrive controls that are on the pedal on the face of the guitar yeah
2: yeah, okay it's right there and and uh (laughs) i love it and then when i go out of the guitar i go into you know when i do sessions and stuff i go into my pedal board i don't go into the volume pedal first I go into I've got it divided up into uh tone shaping, the yep. modulation devices, yep. then the volume control, and then like
0: the reverbs and reverb and delays, and delays and right. stuff. Yeah.
2: So I think that's pretty standard. But uh uh and I use a uh a, a Goodrich light beam pedal that they don't make anymore. Okay. But is very clean, yeah, no pots, great.
0: Yeah. You know? Yeah.
2: But uh you know, so basically I can shape my sound before it even gets to the pedal board.
0: Yeah. A lot of it. What other kinds of pedals do you like to use these days?
2: Oh, I know. I've always got a Wawa handy. Oh, yeah? I, uh...
0: This show is brought to you by the good folks at iZotope, who make incredible plug-in software for any music or dialogue recording situation. Among other things, they make a very unique suite of software called RX, which you can use to surgically repair almost any kind of issue in a recording, whether it's removing electrical hum, unwanted noise, vocal plosives, or almost anything you can throw at it. I use Isotope RX on every mix in one way or another, and I love that I can get in there on guitar tracks that I'm doing and running through my crazy old tube amps and get rid of the hum and noise without affecting the actual tone of the guitar. You can buy their plugins outright or get a subscription to keep up to date on all their latest versions. Right now, they're offering listeners a 10% discount on any of their plugins when you use the code SoulPod 10 at checkout. So head on over to isotope.com/soulpod and you'll see the links right there to get the discount or an extended 30-day trial of their subscription service of Music Production Suite Pro. We're also brought to you this season by Black Mountain Picks. These are unique spring-loaded thumb picks that are super comfortable and adaptable. I've been using them for a couple years now and I absolutely love them. They come in medium gauge, heavy gauge, jazz-tipped, left-handed, and with regular or extra-tight spring tension. Check them out at blackmountainpicks.com. Also thanks to Ear Trumpet Labs, a workshop in Portland, Oregon, hand-building amazing-sounding microphones. These large diaphragm condensers combine state-of-the-art sound with eye-catching designs and the feedback control to excel live as well as in the studio. I am using their Edwina myself right now on this podcast. Check them out at eartrumpetlabs.com. And finally, The Hen House Hang. It's a four-day immersive recording experience right here with me at The Hen House Studio in East Nashville on September 19-22, to 2022. Join us for a musical learning experience like no other. We'll put you up in a groovy hotel, feed you some glorious food, show you the ropes of recording roots in Americana music by bringing you in on a real session with real musicians working on real songs from the ground up. You can get all the info on that at SteveDawson.ca. Just follow the links on the front page to the Henhouse Hang. All right, then let's get back to the show. So, so you keep a wah wah right beside your volume pedal? Oh, or? I just
2: I have a little tool kit I bring with me, and yeah. I just pop it in when I want to use it. And, yeah.
0: And but yeah. do you do you does it sit there beside your volume? Oh, yeah. pedal? yeah, I okay. just
2: scoot the volume pedal over, <laughs> and usually have to put something on the volume pedal so it stays. The volume stays up. Yeah. But then I have a, a, a wah wah, and yeah. I use that. I guess in kind of unexpected ways. I, I think of mm-hmm. it more as a filter. Like a filter, yeah. I mean, I had one of the first Wawa's that ever came to Minneapolis back in 66 or 67. Who made it? Like Morley or something? This was just a cheap, awful thing. Yeah. But uh, then I think I had a Vox. Or, yeah. But, uh, you know, so I've been I, I've been using those things for years. And yeah. most people get on it and just go back and forth. Right. I use it as a, a filter yeah. where you hardly move your foot, but it's very expressive and uh, so i use that more than a person would think people mm-hmm. kind of go wow are you using some sort of ottawa or anything no that's a wawa pedal mm. and, and so i use that quite a bit uh i i have a delay museum in my I house yeah. I'm, I'm heavily into all kinds of delays yeah
0: do you have any favorites these days
2: oh i just got one of the new strymon um volante do you have
0: yeah that one, the big
3: yeah,
2: one? yeah well what do you think of it I, i'm just i'm still working with it i i'm a huge uh hank marvin fan okay and i realized i finally realized my god he wasn't using it like an echoplex he was using one of these multi-head yeah. things so like a uh, benson yeah yeah so it's got that and that's kind of new that world is new to me i've mm-hmm. always been kind of a echoplex right guy. straight ahead
0: like it's, straight ahead one yeah. delay right you
2: know? so i'm starting to learn that now so that's that's pretty exciting but i've got uh i've got a couple tape delays i've got an old tube echoplex i've got yeah. a uh, the full-tone tape yep. delay. Yep. But I've also got, I love uh, Boss. You know, anything Boss makes is mm-hmm. worth having. Yep. Strymon is great. Yep. Uh, you know, just I have a lot of stuff.
0: What about amps these days? What do you use?
2: I uh, Well, I'm a Fender. I grew up playing Blackface Fender amps. Yep. Now my favorite amps are the uh, Drip Edge, you know, Fenders. I have like three Drip Edge. D- d- Princeton's, that's my favorite mm-hmm. amp and i toured for five years with vince gill in a huge band i played a little fender deluxe the whole time just a tiny little amp i set it up so how do you get enough stage volume you put the amp close so you can hear it Uh and then you might have a little bit coming back through your monitor but for the most part play just let the pa do the work that's what i learned when i worked with don williams okay is that uh you don't Fill the room with a PA. You just get your sound, and then let the let the let the sound guy turn you up.
0: Yeah, yeah. But and do you, but you never you never in that situation have a problem hearing yourself without no, having to turn the amp up so no, much no, that you're freaking it out. no, no. if you out. start
2: turning a little amp like that up, then it starts distorting. Yeah. it doesn't sound good. No. So you you learn to play at that low volume, mm-hmm. and that's where all the sweet spots are.
0: Yeah, yeah. And because uh, the deluxe needs to be on like three or four to sound
2: yeah pretty yeah you know it's usually about for two or three. Steal. Yeah. Okay. And wow. you know and I worked with Vince for five years and I know Vince had John Huey. He's you know yeah. me and Paul Franklin are tight as hell and I know I'm not in that league. But the only criticism he ever had of me was you're not loud enough. Really? <laughs> I figured that's a pretty good criticism.
0: Vince probably doesn't play super loud, does he?
2: Oh he can. He can yeah, yeah. you know he he gets excited you know but uh, what a, what a cool gig that was!
0: Yeah, so so what led up to that gig? Uh,
2: I was uh, friends with Michael Rhodes, the bass yep. player. We were doing a session one day. This was like Thursday afternoon, and he said, "Man, we we need somebody to come out with Vince this weekend."
0: So why why wasn't Paul Franklin doing it?
2: Oh, this was Paul was you know, uh, uh,
0: or he was out with Dire Straits or something. No, at this he, point,
2: was or... Sessions, okay, he was just doing sessions. Okay, he was still uh, and. Uh, uh, so I ended up going out, and I ended up being there for five years. So, wow, uh, and uh, uh, it was great. I mean, one of the greatest. You know, what it, a, that what was a, like in the nineties, or no, yeah, no, this was uh, about two thousand five, I think. Oh wow, right. okay, yeah, till about two thousand ten in there. Wow, and we toured quite a bit, and yeah. uh, I mean, what a dream gig for a steel player, right? You know, our shows were like three or four hours long, yeah. or two or three hours long. The first hour would be just solid country gold. I mean, just Amazing. Vince singing and no holds barred, no nothing ashamed of the steel guitar, right? And then after that, we'd go on and do all kinds of other stuff, and I just pick up an electric guitar and just. I practiced rhythm for five years. That's awesome. Great because he yeah. already had two or three guitar players all the time. And they so what I played on guitar was pretty incidental. So I yeah. just would sit and practice rhythm stuff. But for the first hour, uh, the pressure was on, but got to play honest-to-God country steel guitar.
0: Were you playing old songs and stuff, or was it, it was all Vince, Cat, like, all, older all catalog Vince stuff, catalogs? All Vince's Vince catalogs, I mean, yeah. he had eight
2: million songs. Oh, my God, Yeah. 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 So, it was, and you never knew what he was going to do. You never knew what key it was going to be in. Yeah. The keys would change all the time because of how he was feeling. Uh-huh. We would do the Opry. Uh, We'd do the, when they had the TV show on Saturday nights, we'd go there and we'd, there'd be a minute beforehand, we'd, we going to do a certain song and a certain key. By the time we get to the stage, that would have changed how, twice.
0: How would that come to him? He'd just be like, I'm not feeling those yeah, high notes just, or what? Yeah, and that's
2: it. Yeah. It's just how he felt. And, you know, he's, he's a total feeling guy. So.
0: And uh, he would just say, hey, Russ, he, we're going to do this in half yeah, tonight.
2: Yeah and F, you know, and, and the thing is, he, the, the hardest part of the whole gig was there was a few songs that were uh steel heavy that would have a half-step mod, and yeah. the hardest thing would be to, to remember what the hell key right. are we in, and then that half-step mod, because these songs would constantly be changing, yeah, you know, key-wise.
0: I'm surprised he'd does that like he seems like so consistent of a performer that oh he is
2: but that's part of that's because he 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 manages it
0: would it be like hey everything's down a half step tonight or was it just like hey that song was we're gonna
2: yeah you know most songs were you know didn't change but Mm -hmm. one he'd go uh you know they'd be on the list i mean the list would never mean anything either after the first three songs okay you know because he would start just go by feel yeah, yeah and uh and a lot of times just as uh uh what was it was one of his big hits with a steel introduction and it was just like uh just as you the count he'd go E flat tonight you know or whatever so awesome. it was it was good it was a real challenge you really yeah. had to be on your
0: did you play on any of his records no
2: never, never so you were never just never the road guy for him of, uh you know, a, bit, a bit frustrating and then when I left uh, that's when, uh, Paul Franklin kind of, I think that's when they kind of started, things were started, you okay. know, cause, but he'd been recording with and they were, you know, yeah. already. So that was always a bit of a frustration, but I understand it, you know,
0: so it would come time to make a record and you just wouldn't get the call. Is right. That, right. That's right. okay. Weird. Yeah.
2: Oh no, that's pretty common. That's
0: how it goes. But I mean, I, that, you were a road guy.
2: I at was a road point. guy. I was a road guy. Okay. Well, I was, I'm playing a lot of other people's yeah, records. Yeah, right, yeah. but
0: Before that, you did the thing with Dickie Bats, like uh-huh. a bunch of touring. At what point does the session thing really start ticking for you in oh, Nashville?
2: The early 2000s? Not till then. Yeah, no, I'd be out with Vince, being his road player, but at the time, there'd be like two... Uh, I'd be playing on a, the top two songs on the charts. Yeah, yeah. But for somebody else.
0: Because you were playing on... Like you've got that interesting thing where you're playing like like on all this pretty hip, alternative kind of stuff and like mm-hmm. all T-Bone stuff, uh-huh. but then you're also playing on like super commercial yeah. country stuff right, too right? right? Yeah. like the roles are different for Steel and yeah,
2: but that's that's what I love because yeah. I, I, I guess I have a short attention span <laughs> and uh, I I I like to I I like to think that I can go in and play what's appropriate for yeah. the situation and. That has served me really well. Yeah. I mean, the first time I worked for T Bone Burnett, you just mentioned him, uh, was a situation where I had friends who were kind of in his crew. And so,
0: what what project was it that you did first with him? It was him?
2: the uh, uh, they they'd already done the Raising Sand album. Yeah. And they already already all got you know ten Grammys or whatever, all that business. Yeah. And they were working on a second one. Yeah. this is about 2000. I play
0: with Jay Baleros, and so oh, okay. so I, I kind of know the whole. Uh, okay. I mean, I don't play with him regularly, yeah. but I've I made a bunch of records with him, and uh, I've I have heard the the whole.
2: Well, yeah, and crazy things story. were Kind of, yeah. Well, anyhow, uh, Buddy Miller was one of the guys, and Dennis Crouch, the bass player. Yeah. They kept going. We've been talking to T Bone about him. I think he won... he T Bone just didn't wasn't excited about Nashville Steel players. He liked. Yeah. He likes Greg, uh, Lease. Greg Lease And but he was in Nashville, and finally one night about 10 o'clock, Buddy Miller calls me up and said, can you get over to Sound Emporium pretty quick? And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll be there in a half hour. <laughs> so I walk in about 10.30, carrying my guitar and amp into a room with all these heavyweights. They're yep. all starting to work on a song. There's Alison Krauss, Robert Plant's in the control room.
0: And this is like soon after Raising Sound, right? Yeah.
1: and 365-day returns.
2: Okay. Yeah. So uh, I go in and set up, and I'm, you know, this is pretty intimidating. This is, this is big pressure. Huh. And then this big, tall, blonde guy, huge man, walks in and says, I'm T-Bone, I've heard good things about you. So you'd never met him? No. And then he kind of bent down, and as I'm sitting at the steel, he says, I don't like steel guitar licks. <laughs> And that's (laughs) the only direction he's ever given me, it's been 12, 13, 14 years now, Uh, that's the only steel guitar direction he's ever given me.
0: Don't play any steel guitar licks. Yes.
2: And uh, we recorded uh, a song, that that moment, which just came out on the, the new album.
0: So there's a bunch of, like that album is sort of half new and half right, like right, from right. 2012 yeah. or 13 or whenever yeah, that was? Yeah,
2: wow, yeah. crazy. So, um, and then, uh, so I, I played on that and then a couple of years ago we did the the new recordings, which is about half the records.
0: Yeah. So. Were those sessions noticeably different? The two 10 years apart Robert well, Plant, Alison Crowe situations? Well,
2: the... Uh, the, the band was more electric, the mm-hmm. second, you know, it was it was uh, David Hildago on, on guitar, Bill uh, Frizzell on guitar. Yeah. Uh, uh,
0: was Alex, it all here?
2: Yeah, yeah. over at Sound Emporium, yeah. Mm-hmm. We did two sets of sessions for it, yeah. right before COVID. Hit.
0: Rebo was there again? No, Rebo
2: was he, Rebo So that was in the original. Rebo was in the original, okay. but Rebo overdubbed, I think, quite a bit on the new stuff, but he okay. wasn't there for tracking.
0: Uh-huh. So, but Hidalgo was
2: Hidalgo was and Bill know how cool is that to be sitting in a room with those guys you know so pretty cool Uh, I've been working uh, and
0: so so what's the situation in a session like that uh, as far as like how much direction are you given and what do you do instinct wise versus what you think they want and like how do you approach it
2: well, like with t-bone like on that stuff that particular stuff he would kind of go play steel on this or if it was something that he wasn't feeling he would he would have me play uh, dan electro bass
0: yeah he played so, a bunch of bass on that yeah
2: part. so uh but wasn't
0: didn't didn't they have victor Krauss there
2: yeah at- yeah but victor and i would you know we have you know i've known victor for years right. we have an understanding and yeah. when i'm playing uh a, a, you know Dan electro bass, which is not really bass; it's bass guitar, but it's more tic tac. Yeah. And, and so I I play loosely on what the bass player is playing. We have an understanding, and maybe some places we might we might correlate it. But yeah. uh, part of my deal is to play accents and stuff that they might not play. It's 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 kind of like a mid range guitar.
0: Do you work that stuff out, or do you just kind of feel it?
2: You just kind of feel it. You, yeah. you, I, I when I approach a song. I just I think try to think of a motif in my mind, first off. Well who what is this record gonna do? Just a general, you know. And that's like for steel. Mm-hmm. Let's say he says, play Steel on this song. Yeah. Well, let's just see, do I need to be atmospheric? Do I need to be a hillbilly? Do yeah. I need to is this a New York song? Is this what Is it a-
0: running through your head constantly like don't play any steel licks? <laughs>
2: no no okay no, so you've no.
0: got you've worked past that well
2: i don't i'm not a lick player i never was <laughs> no but know?
0: but you yeah. can still like T-
2: to me it's it's all about emotion it's all about yeah. milking the instrument for emotion and um, so no, I, 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 but try not to think that, that that much that would be that's just that starts excluding too much stuff yeah. but don't don't rely on licks don't rely right. on being clever and steel guitar a lot of a lot of really good steel players tend to learn a lot of the vocabulary and then they try applying it to whatever music. Yeah. And to me, you've got to, No, don't play licks, play the emotion rather than the mechanics.
0: Right. It. In those sessions, do you end up keeping most of your live tracks or do you go in and like overdub stuff or what uh, do you.
2: most of that stuff is live tracks. Yeah. yeah. And um, it's. Kind and this, of,
0: are, are the vocal arrangements done in advance with those guys or? no
2: usually with with Robert and Allison one or the other would do the track okay because they're still kind con- conceptually figuring working it out and, yeah. and you know then they they go and work on it later there's a couple where they would sing together mm-hmm. and god it's a powerful feeling <laughs> when you're got them singing in your headphones yeah and then you got Bill Frizzell playing and, and amazing yeah it's just the uh, you know yep. just, and then jay Bellarose. Jay, jay and i've be, become very very good friends over the years and he's a
0: very nice fella
2: and yeah and he is one of the great modern dynamos and so unpredictable yeah just and that's what so, i love about him uh, uh so musical it's yeah. just, it's scary how well he plays yeah
0: do you get much feedback from robert plant
2: yeah 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 yeah. one day we uh i got to the studio a little early and i, I was just in there noodling around my guitar he comes in a little early he comes over and sits down and we start talking and we're you know just talking about blues or something and he was kind of going yeah well we kind of you know dinged it up you know this british you know stuff. <laughs> and i said okay hold it wait a second all due respect But if it weren't for you guys like you, I wouldn't know blues from a hole in the ground because uh, being a white American, I didn't know what blues was until I heard it from you British guys. Right. And uh, believe me, most of the blues I heard was done by you guys first. So that's my favorite. Mm -hmm. I mean, I love all the old stuff. I don't have the reverence for it that you do or Mm -hmm. knowledge, but never discount what you guys did. Right. And he kind of, yeah. okay, okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow, that's heavy, man. Yeah, yeah. Shit.
2: And he is an encyclopedia of old blues records. Is he really? Oh, yeah. He knows every label color. He knows every version of everything. He's really, real new- I,
0: I didn't realize that he was so deeply oh, yeah. into
2: it. So. Oh yeah, hmm. serious, serious. Cool.
0: I don't know why I'm focusing on that record, other than it's a cool, super cool record. But like, is there a lot of repertoire stuff that gets tossed around that doesn't get used, or are you? Do you, do you guys basically just work on everything that ends up coming out, or yeah,
2: most of that stuff is just yeah. uh, uh, Well, there was you know we probably cut fifteen songs in the last couple sessions, and they probably mm-hmm. used half of those. Okay. You know. So yeah, yeah, there's stuff that doesn't doesn't see the light of day, but it. But not tons. But half that record was cut ten years ago and didn't see the light of day. So uh, it's just kind of the way that works. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Interesting. You know, some things work, some things don't work, or maybe it's not the right time for something.
0: Yeah. 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 So who are some of the other producers that you really enjoy working with these Mm. days?
2: Well, um, I do like Dan Auerbach. I kind of. Oh yeah. So yeah.
0: What's your what's your take on like what he has sort of brought to the whole scene here? because oh. he's he's using a lot of the old older guys. Yep, yep, he's yep. he's sort of doing some pretty cool shit. Oh, he's right? just
2: having a field day, you know. He's uh-huh. he's another musicologist who's got yep. an incredible record collection, who uh, uh, just studies just studies all this stuff. And you know, he came to Nashville and he uh, started hooking up with all the, the legends. In, yeah. And, you know, we ended up with a rhythm section. I came into him actually before he started doing that, mm-hmm. uh, once again, through Buddy Miller. Okay. Dan lived across the alley from Buddy Miller. a few okay. years back, And, uh, Buddy's one of my favorite producers too. He has yeah. been doing a lot lately, but I've done a lot of stuff with Buddy. Mm-hmm. He's a, he's a great guy. and, and yep. uh, uh, we, uh, we have a great understanding, but, uh, Dan, uh, Called me and said, well, Buddy said, uh, there's this guy, Dan Arbach, uh, from the Black Keys. I gave him your phone number. I hope it's okay. I go, yeah, Buddy, it's okay. So,
0: were you aware of the Black Keys? Vaguely. Sort of, yeah. Vaguely.
2: Well, I knew they were, right then, everything, you know, there was big commercials coming out with their songs on yeah. so I realized this is a big deal.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Anyhow, Dan called me and said, yeah, I'm, we're over here at the studio. Can you come over? And mm-hmm. So I went and set up, and it was a... a, a an artist named Bambino, mm-hmm. which was a uh is it tarig tribesman or something okay. from africa wow. east africa i yeah. guess and the whole band was in there and there's all these guys you know like uh, maybe they had done a photo shoot or something earlier That but they had like head scarves and all this stuff and i walked in and and he said just set up a play with the band and uh we did. I just jumped into this East African rhythmic Wicked. stuff.
0: Yeah, and that I'm, it's a good fit. I mean, yeah, why, yeah, absolutely.
2: So, and were I, there
0: are there was already guitar players in that band.
2: Yeah, he's a guitar player. Uh, Bombino's is great. Okay, know, he's sort of the Santana of. Uh, okay, yeah, and uh, um, very rhythmic. Odd, the, the bars aren't odd, but their phrasing is odd, and right. and I just had to it's sort like John of John Lee Hooker, right? Yeah, I sort of had to just feel it rather than mm-hmm. try to count it because yep. I'm not a very good counter. so. <laughs> but, I mean, when well, the first song, uh, there was a big steel solo in the middle of it, you know, and it, it's just me doing my impression. I had no idea what I was doing, but...
0: What was their reaction to, to what you played? Because that would be a foreign, They liked it. They loved it. Was it. Just, cool. Yeah, it was just,
2: yeah. wow, you know, and so I ended up finishing the record with them. Uh, Bombino came back to town a couple times. I actually played at a live gig at a bowling alley out on Dickerson Road with him one time. Wicked. You know, so... Uh, how cool is that? And I just sort of got into the Dan camp, and we've done...
0: You did Yola's record? Did Yola. Done she, a couple lives, records. she lives right next door.
2: Oh! Well, if you say hello, if you see her, <laughs> tell her I say hello. I've <laughs> done a, her, a couple of her records. Did a John Anderson record. Oh, uh, cool. We did a atlanta del ray record uh ray Lamontagne record yeah all kinds of stuff
0: what would be some of the hallmarks of working with him is he just as much of a live kind of feel guy as tebow oh, yeah, yeah yeah
2: and and yeah when uh when you're out in the you know no click track mm-hmm. uh no individual headphone mixes you just yeah. go out there and and play and uh
0: what sort of feedback do you get from him as far as direction goes
2: well you know i i i i I've become almost more of a guitar player for him than a steel player. I still do steel guitar stuff, but most yeah. of the time I'll play guitar on the tracks. Okay. Because I'm I, I fashion myself as a real wannabe electric rhythm guitarist. That's that's, that's what I want to <laughs> be. Think more you've than graduated anything. beyond that you know, point. But, <laughs> but uh, so I love to play in the tracks, and I love to help with the arrangements. You okay. Know? I'm I'm kind of an on the floor guy with Dan. Where, hey Dan, I think if we took half a bar out here that might, you know, mm-hmm. work and that works good. And, and so I do that. And then steel guitar, it's been a process because he, uh, I used to get frustrated because he just, all he wanted was Pete Drake. That was all he could think about. And I get it, but you know, and I, I, but Dan, I'm not Pete Drake. And why Pete
0: Drake? He just dug Just that. loves it. You just
2: know? dug it. Well, okay. why anybody loves Pete Drake yeah. it's just because Pete plays right to the gut. You yeah. Know, nothing fancy, no licks. Right. You know, Pete plays pure emotion. Yeah. And so but I, I've kind of gone, you know, worked worked through that with him, but uh
0: But he wants a bit more licky playing than T Bone yeah, does, he I guess. Likes, yeah. He
2: yeah, he, he wants
0: some, he, some flash. he's
2: got some ideas mm-hmm. about and and really it 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 all would come down to Pete Drake. It's, it's okay.
0: interesting. That's funny. Where
2: but now we just. Like,
0: does he name? Does he, like, oh, if Pete Drake were here, he would.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. Or he would go, here, listen to this record. I mean, I'll get texts in the middle of the night. Here, listen to this, you know, some Pete Drake thing. So. You're like,
0: yeah, yeah. I've, heard I've that. had to
2: take the ringer off my, my texting thing just because I have so many friends that are. Uh, uh, the, who don't sleep much and are musicologists, and they're yeah. always sending me stuff in the oddest hours. <laughs> and now I start doing that. So.
0: But, Does Dan, when he produces records, is he out on the floor playing too, generally? Uh,
2: you know, he's sort of gotten where he's more in the control room. Mm-hmm. You know, there there's there's been a kind of a big shift in the way the 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 session band the 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 session band is evolving. Mm-hmm. uh yeah, you know, I've been I've been through, like probably ten years of you know doing records there, and
0: he's over on Eighth South 8th Avenue, yeah. right? Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Got a great studio. Yeah, great guitars. uh, uh it's it's a great place. Great engineer. Alan so, Parker. do you
0: need to bring a guitar when you go? I don't out, need or? to,
2: but I'm such a nerd that I I bring all my my the, my my uh, Frankenstein guitars.
3: Okay.
2: Yeah. Well, what I found about I have a number of friends who have these beautiful uh, studios and guitar collections the problem is when these people have you know 30 or 40 guitars they tend not to get uh maintained enough totally and i'm i love a guitar and i'm i'm anal about Mm -hmm. having a guitar set up correctly so i bring all my own okay but i still end up using a lot of his yeah or he'll go uh, you need to play the sunburst so he'll bring me his sunburst Les Paul you know, yeah. yeah I guess I'll play that
0: <laughs> who are the other sort of stalwarts in his camp these days like is, does he use the same drummers and bass players well he's
2: he's starting to use Jay Belleros. We actually we got oh, something is, coming eh? okay. up in a few weeks Jay is flying to town for oh cool okay Uh uh Dave Rowe has played bass on a lot of the stuff yeah. M- Mike Rojas mm-hmm. is, is, does a lot of the stuff Uh um Sam Bacco on percussion, mm-hmm. Gene Chrisman, Billy Sanford, my father-in-law. I sort of snuck Billy wow. into that camp, and you know, so it's how it's, old
0: is would he be now?
2: Billy just turned eighty-two the other amazing. day. Amazing. He's doing great. He's uh, recovering from a little knee surgery right now. But
0: he still plays. Um,
2: he plays. He's like the world's old, oldest teenager. And amazing. He's, I've got to say. Uh, I'm very fussy about guitar players. I'm very critical yeah. of guitar players. <laughs> yeah. Billy, I think is one of the most incredible natural guitar players really? I've ever heard i I sort of parallel him with of all people Jeff Beck Wow, I think he's you know he's in the same class as Jeff Beck wow. as far as he plays totally inspired from the hip mm-hmm. he can play it's like. He can play anything he thinks of. Yeah. And if you sat down and talked to him you'd never know, you know, it's not like he's sitting there working on scales or anything. Mm-hmm. He just something comes to him and he manages to make his fingers do it. Wow. It's amazing.
0: What's a good thing to hear him really play on?
2: Is oh, there Oh, the Keith Whitley records, oh, he played yeah, all okay. that stuff. Uh, there was one big record, uh, I'm no stranger to the rain. There's a Waylon Jennings record called uh, Don't Let the Sun Set on Tulsa okay. or whatever, amazing guitar solo in the middle of it. Uh, David Loggins, Please Come to Boston, uh-huh. There's a a phase shifter guitar solo in the middle of it. Billy played that. Okay. The phase shifter came in the mail that morning, it was like the first phase shifter in Nashville. <laughs> awesome uh but yeah I, I mean we're family and everything but i i i think he's one of the most naturally gifted musicians i've ever been.
0: is he still actively working or not he's so much slowed
2: down a bit but uh-huh. we still cut with dan every now and then cool yeah, yeah.
0: yeah so you're you're are you working there fairly often with with dan at yeah, his place yeah that's yeah, great yeah,
2: yeah yeah it's it's one of my regular haunts
0: yeah and then buddy's place you've done quite a bit oh, of work there stuff over the years. at buddy's place yeah, yeah. at the house yep yeah. at the house yeah huh
2: so uh and did I uh, did uh, the whole run of Nashville the TV show. Oh right of which course. Which started yeah. with T-Bone and then ended up with Buddy and then yep. Tim Lauer. Yeah. So I played oh sorry. I probably played uh, whatever three or four seasons of that. Okay. So uh
0: and was I, there a lot of steel on that stuff or was it more guitar?
2: Yeah. Yeah, well I I didn't I I played more banjo. Than really? I played guitar, yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh It was just as a session player back in the 90s i decided every year i was going to add something new to my arsenal yeah and i'm a pretty good finger picking guitar player so Mm -hmm. i got a banjo and in the early 2000s i was probably the most recorded nashville banjo player really just because i could play slow unfancy with a click track where a lot of really virtuoso banjo players that's just not in their thing. Yeah, if
0: you slow it down, they're
2: so, uh, falling all over themselves. You know. Uh, I, so I, what kind
0: of stuff were you playing banjo on?
2: Oh, just the things like uh, uh, just records by... Uh, uh,
0: but five-string banjo.
2: Five-string banjo. Yeah. No, not using finger picks, just Okay, so you sort of thing. had your own thing. Yeah. yeah, basically it's a sequencer. That's okay. how I approach it. <laughs> yeah. I would just come up with a pattern that fit over the chords and just, and just stick do it. with it. Uh-huh. But that sort of... So
0: you started Uh, getting calls for banjo? Oh, yeah. I've I've
2: played whole days of double scale playing banjo. Wow. I mean, I'd be be in there with Paul Franklin playing Steel or Dan Dugmore or something. And I'm in there playing banjo. (laughs)
0: Wow. That's crazy. It was a
2: short while uh, uh, Mark Wright, the producer, we – did a couple albums where both Dan and Doug Moore and I were hired and we would flip key or flip coin you know who's going to play steel who's going to play guitar <laughs> we had a great time wow you know i've done uh, sessions with Paul Franklin where i've played guitar and he's played steel
0: yeah in the 90s were things pretty busy for you session wise
2: incredibly they it were was mostly demo work but i i worked. so
0: like showing up at a studio setting up Doing a three-hour call kind of thing. Three times a day. Three times days. a day. days a week. Okay. And that I, was regular, like you were doing it all I the time. I
2: worked all the time. That yeah. was my second 10,000 hours yeah. was the 90s playing demos. My first 10,000 hours was Minneapolis playing clubs. Yeah. Then there was the second 10,000 hours is the 90s playing demos.
0: Why did that never really graduate to records at that at that time?
2: Because it wasn't my time. As my wife said. It just wasn't. In fact, there was a time when I was just getting this great little foothold and Dan Dugmore, who I already knew, and yeah. we were good friends, he came to town and took all the wind out of my sail. Really? I actually got twice different people called me and said, man, we got you booked for these <laughs> sessions here, but well, we got a chance to get Dan Dugmore. So uh, I'm going to have to let you go. And that was not very good for the spirits at the time. Oh, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And yeah.
2: the thing is, Dan Dugmore is one of the most wonderful Players you want to hate him, and, and, you know, and it was just, it was, I was so frustrated. I was so frustrated. But my time came. My mm-hmm. time came. And uh, so
0: would you say that that was like maybe a stylistic thing where what he did was kind of more desirable at that time? Whereas now, like, it's kind of it's kind of more like what you do time.
2: I think what it was that part of because is you're
0: very different players.
2: Yes. He he well, we're both kind of of the hippie. You know, hip right. and steel. But he just came to town at the right time because he had played with James Brown and Linda Ronstadt. And that's what everybody wanted their records to James sound James Brown? Like. I mean, James Taylor. Sorry. Okay. James Taylor and Linda Ronstadt. <laughs> and he just was the, 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 had that California element. and he So came, he came
0: to town and he was just like gangbusters Oh, here. he
2: came to town, you know, he came to town with a full booking, you know. Holy shit. So... Oh, and boy, it just broke my heart for really? several years. I mean, yeah. it just it was hard. But eventually, uh I just I I started
0: So was the demo thing a grind or was it cool?
2: Oh, it was a grind. It was yeah. college, it was all of the above. Mm-hmm. You know, some days it was horrible. Yeah. Some days it was great. Yeah. Uh but I decided I needed to that was probably the late nineties. I realized I need to really develop my own voice. And mm-hmm. right? and that's when I started putting pedal boards together started rewiring guitars rethinking how pedals i had already approached steel guitar more as a guitar player in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. but i just took that further and i started doing delay things on tracks where where I wasn't even playing steel guitar stuff. I was playing stuff that they might do a sequencer. But I was figuring out how to go do that live. Back before there was, you could dial the, the BPMs. You had to, before Tap, there was, tap it in there. Well, before there was yeah. tap, you know. Just, <laughs> but I just, I, I, I had a vision in my head. Okay, you need to do that. And uh, uh, I just saw it through. I, I, I kind of had a five-year plan. I said, I'm going to try to invent a, a new way to make this instrument fit the changing music scene.
0: Were there some landmark recordings in your mind of your own work where you feel like that started to really come together?
2: Oh, I don't know if they you know, stylists. There was just some hit records that made a difference. You know, Gretchen Wilson's records. Oh, were, yeah. were I mean, she came out of the box, and there was like three or four number one records off, off that one album.
0: So okay. who was producing that stuff?
2: Mark Wright. Okay. Mark Wright.
0: So, you got the call from that just from knowing him or whatever? And,
2: yeah, and, yeah. I had worked on a bunch of other stuff with him. And yeah. this, she uh, was around, uh, I was playing on demos with her. Yeah. And, and, you know, so we knew each other from that. And then okay. she we went and cut that uh, redneck girl. Yeah. And, so that
0: know. goes gangbusters. And then, like, does that really, like, immediately your phone starts ringing with people? Um,
2: no, saying, it's not. But, but you just notice that suddenly I'm getting more record calls mm-hmm. rather than demo calls. Right. But I never quit doing demos. Mm-hmm. I, I, I just kept doing, you know, working overtime, but getting more record calls mm-hmm. and stuff. So, and, you know, records is different. You, generally, it's, it's a slower process. It's much more refined. Sometimes it can be so detail-oriented frustrating. It's just like, good God, this this is beyond perfect you know what, what, mm-hmm. and then some of it, it just with mark right you know we go and first take there's your record yeah you know and they'd be kind of loose and you know but that's what made it a hit but yeah i just you know gradually realized wow i'm actually playing on records now
0: you don't really play on demos and stuff anymore do you
2: well i did up until covid and okay. then uh, when the covid thing hit i was just at that point i just Got old enough to get Social Security mm-hmm. and my pension, and I thought, well, at first I'm going to with COVID, I'm just going to hang out at home. I'm I'm not going to risk going off to sessions right now, so I kind of ended up retiring from a certain level of playing. Yeah, and I uh, if people would call, I would just recommend my younger friends because mm-hmm. they need it more than I do right, right now. Yeah, and. So I've sort of, you know, in, you know, without actually stating it, I sort of got out of that mm-hmm. that strata of plan.
0: probably worked really well for you. Yeah, imagine. and
2: also, um, I was one of the, f- I I like to think I was one of the first digital uh, remote overdubbing p- pioneers. Oh yeah. In this town, back in the '90s. I was starting I had a hard disk recorder yeah I had an FTP site I was wow I, heavy. Was, I, I learned and I'm not very computer literate but I learned enough to be able to do um, overdubs and i mean i serviced canada i mean i was playing more records in canada
0: how did but like through who just
2: like, people i knew you know people i knew from playing on demos and they go man can you play on this and play on that so who
0: did you play on with oh, from jason canada?
2: mccoy and, oh
0: like uh, the country stuff yeah the country okay. stuff yeah,
2: yeah. I did, and I did so much of that through the 90s and early 2000s that I got tired of it, and I officially retired. I sold my (laughs) recording rig. I said, I don't want to do any more home overdubs. Well, COVID changed that. Yeah.
0: Are you doing some of that again?
2: Oh, I'm doing a lot of it now, but I'm I'm doing it on my terms. It's great. I I, I used to just... uh, I don't know. I, I got frustrated with it, and I've now I've got a system where
0: frustrated why um, just the lack of any sort of well
2: part of it at the time. So much of the music I'd be getting these, you know. Uh, um, rap soundtracks you know put steel on this make steel fit in this and i'm just uh-huh. I, I don't understand this music I'll, I'll and nobody's there to right. yeah. yeah and having to second guess it and then i used to try to send back an edited perfect piece mm-hmm. now uh what i do is uh first off i know most of the people now that send me stuff and COVID gave it a license i mean now i do records i do stuff for t-bone now at my house oh well, that would yeah. have never happened before right. yeah. but then yesterday i uh worked on a, a piece for a a, a a movie thing he's working on and, mm-hmm. and it just said can you give me an, an alternate version on this this pass so you know i do that cool and did
0: you play on the george and tammy stuff that, yeah yeah that, that's okay. it. Yeah. yeah
2: we're still working on that all right and that was great fun because that we got to go... Uh, I
0: think it'll be out by the time we air this, so okay. can, I think we can talk about it.
2: <laughs> um, oh, it's been great fun because... Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah, are you? That's an ongoing thing? Yeah,
2: we've been working on it for the last six months, and yeah. it's still still going on.
0: You're not on the show, though, are you? No, no, no. Okay. No,
2: no. I think I'm too old. I realize some of the other guys, younger guys... My uh, friend
0: Jamie Dix playing yeah, dr- drums yeah, in, the, yeah. in the show, yeah. I think.
2: Yeah, and, but I, I think... Uh, they Back then, they wouldn't have had anybody right. that old. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, who's that white-haired guy? <laughs> no, it's been great fun. It's been great doing the forensics of all that George and Tammy yeah, stuff. Yeah, man. That'd be fun. And as it turns out, my father-in-law was the session leader on all the Billy – Cheryl Sessions. Oh, Billy. shit. So I've got a real... So it, it ended up that one of the producers from the show ended up calling me, and I've been sort of a pipeline for information about right. background for the sessions and stuff. Awesome. Through Billy and and people like that. And
0: are you going for like a sound-alike thing? Or well, not exactly?
2: Well, a lot of it is sound-alike, but uh, as T-Bone said, I don't like Steel X. So I never really copied Pete. I just... Did my I'm unimpressed. Who, I'm who gonna, plays
0: steel on that stuff?
2: Oh, it was Pete Drake. Always oh, Pete on Drake. Ninety five percent of it. Lloyd Green played on a little bit of right. it. Right. Um, but, but
0: how do you play on something like that and not play any steel? Well, legs? I guess I see what you mean. Like it's not lick oriented. No, playing No, no. And, much and as, I was yeah.
2: playing you know, impression, and and then I know most of those songs just mm-hmm. by osmosis. Right. But it's been really fun. Like I just did. Uh, we did Stand by Your Man, and we did a really good version of it, mm-hmm. and. And I did my impression of the record, you know. Well, they just sent me the track without steel on it again. It says, we're going to use this in another scene where it's a live scene. Can Mm -hmm. you just give me an alternate steel take Mm -hmm. like a live player? So it was like, okay, now how would the road player play this. Right. And different psychology. Like a little drunker. (laughs) Yeah, oh yeah, just probably a little busier, (laughs) a little more like, hey, 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 listen to me, listen to me. Yeah. So I did that, you know, and that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I just did that yesterday morning out at the house. Wow, that's so cool. uh, It's just, you know, it's interesting how deep you can go with all this.
0: So do you have a little setup at home that's permanently sort of there? Yeah, I just got a little,
2: uh, well, when COVID first hit, I called, uh, I've got a, guy up at Sweetwater Music I buy stuff from, and Mm -hmm. I said, I need a computer. And he said, man, we're just really... Everything was, like,
3: supply. And
2: he said, we've got, like, one iMac here. And I said, send it to me. (laughs) And so I just have this little iMac and a little uh, Apogee, and uh, I set it up on my kitchen table. Or uh, sometimes we have a little place in Kentucky, and then we have a little condo in Donaldson. So sometimes I'll bring it... You know, I put it all in a big... uh, storage bin, plastic yep. storage bin, and yep. that's my portable studio. Wow. But uh, it does the trick. I mean, yeah, yeah. the Strymon makes a little thing called the uh, uh, Iridium.
0: Oh, yeah. Is that cool?
2: Oh, it's badass. Really? I mean, I'm I'm a real hardcore amp guy, yep. but I do most of my recording through the Iridium.
0: Does it just sound like a Fender amp? It sounds that...
2: like a Fender amp. I end up using the Vox uh, model a lot because... Uh, it just, you know, I don't know if it sounds more like a Vox, but sometimes that's just the sound. It's a little different sound. I like that a lot. But
0: Is it supposed to sound like a mic Fender amp? Yeah, Is that the idea? It, okay. it has
2: three settings. It's, it's got a Fender setting, yeah. a Vox, and a Marshall. And then oh. like three different speaker models. Yeah,
0: okay.
2: And it's... It's great. It just doesn't, it, it's like it doesn't do anything. It's just kind of makes it sound believable. Huh. And I've used it with some very discriminating engineers. When I had my amp along, I said, let's try this. Yep. And they're kind of going, oh, okay. And then they go, hey, you sound like you. That's all that matters. And so at the house, I can set up. I mean, uh, my wife can be sitting you know, next to me uh, doing puzzles or something and you're on headphones and i'm, headphones and, yeah. and I'm over there clanking you know Great. clanking of the steels so, yeah it's 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 real believable uh strymon uh yeah they make some cool shit yeah if they put something out usually by the time they put it out it's pretty well figured out
0: yeah they're, they're yeah, that flint pedal for me it's been the one yeah. where it's like I yeah, i just i never yeah. don't use that yeah I've, every other pedal i have yeah. changes but that
2: one's always well, there I'm, I'm i'm pretty uh critical as far as tremolo goes yeah and it's it's pretty damn good tremolo. it is pretty damn good yes
0: yeah. yeah i really like the brown the the bias tremolo oh yeah, yeah it
2: sounds yeah. amazing you know and i see I, I i'll use stuff like that with the steel you know where it, it's just uh and i i think maybe there's a generation of young steel players coming up that maybe have a more open mind that's one thing about the steel guitar world there's a there's a sort of, if Buddy or Lloyd didn't do it, why is it, it isn't worth doing? Right. And, and and no disrespect for either one of those guys, mm-hmm. because they're gods to me. Yeah. But I think the instrument has been sort of stilted. Mm-hmm. Where people have just, uh, there needs to be more open mind to the instrument. And it, because it, it, uh, I think it's one of the most expressive tone generators there are. Yeah, man. And, and... Uh, I guess that's what I'm. My mission is to just open those doors, and uh, uh, you know I think there's 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 players that do wacky things, but they're kind of missing maybe some technique in the process. And uh, I still think you need to have a good basic working knowledge of the instrument. But I also think you need to have an open mind and. Don't be afraid to try this stuff. Yeah, and uh, you know, check, you know, s- suss out your situation. You know, right. it's, I think Paul Franklin calls it reading the room. And
0: <laughs> it's the perfect expression. And for
2: you it. know, it just depends. You know, you you get in and see what am I needed here? What is our little mission statement here today? Maybe I'm just the hillbilly guy, but then there's some days where I'm the guy who takes this country record and makes it more pop. Yeah. you know it's it just all it's every day it's different so it's it's keeping all that in mind yeah and then uh, not playing any licks
0: yeah do you get called for much modern country stuff anymore yeah you I do? Have, yeah, yeah
2: yeah I have a, I, I have uh, a handful of accounts and I still yeah. play uh
0: and with that uh, world do you find like my impression is that they kind of want steel but they don't really want Steel,
2: yeah, a lot of it is kind of cut and paste where Uh you'll you'll just go in and and, uh record stuff and and it it won't be where you put it originally, they'll they'll cut and use Mm -hmm. cut and paste, which is fine, you know. But uh, yeah, I still do Mm -hmm. a fair amount of it, yeah, yeah.
0: And what and do you do any road work these days, or are you just like not into that?
2: Uh, it's, it's tricky times. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, I've been. You're not
0: doing the Robert Plant tour? I
2: don't know. Okay. I mean, I was hired for it for a while and then it sort of went away. Okay. And I, you know, I don't know how that's going to play out just yeah. because it, uh, they had a whole, uh, we were supposed to start this next month, mm-hmm. and then COVID sort of. It, oh,
0: did they shit can some of this stuff? Yeah, yeah. Right. So
2: I, I haven't heard. At this point, I'm not in the loop.
0: You would in tour things. with I, Robert yeah. Plant? No,
2: that that would be. Well, just <laughs> I would love to be out there with Jay. Yeah,
0: yeah. You know, I hear you.
2: Jay and I, uh, we have a good time
0: together. Yeah. Have a few
2: cocktails. Yeah, yeah. he's he's. he's uh, He's a cultured. He's a real yeah, and man. he's a real brother in the in the in the music army with me. Yeah. You know, so cool, man. Well,
0: this has been uh so great to have you. on. We,
2: we did get pretty geeky there. So
0: we got pretty geeky there, yeah. Way geekier than I <laughs> usually get, which is fun. And
2: that was that's the tip of the icebergs.
0: I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we covered lots of All right, cool well this shit. has
2: been a pleasure. It's yeah, fun to, fun to talk. Thank you.
0: Folks, that was my conversation with Russ Paul. I had a blast talking with him, and I hope you enjoyed listening to it. We shall see you in a couple weeks for another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. We'll see you then. Music Makers and Soul Shakers is produced at the Henhouse Studio in Nashville, Tennessee by Steve Dawson. Please remember to subscribe to the show and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. You can find more info on this episode, including show notes and an audio playlist at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Thanks again to our amazing sponsors this season Ear Trumpet Labs, Union Tube and Transistor, Black Mountain Picks, Isotope, and Spectra 1964. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.